0: Everything has its season Everything has its time Show me a reason And I'll soon show you a rhyme Cats fit on the windowsill Children fit in the snow Why do I feel I don't fit in Anywhere I go Rivers belong where they can ramble Eagles belong they can fly. I've got to be where my spirit can
1: run free. Gotta find my corner
2: of the sky. Hello, and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, June 18th, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. Also with us sitting in a third chair joining us is John Rubenstein. Broadway fans know John dating back to the original Pippin plus the national tour of Pippin. And starting this week, he can be seen as President Eisenhower in the new play, Eisenhower, This Piece of Ground. John, thank you so much for getting up on a Sunday morning and talking with us on Broadway Radio.
0: It's a pleasure. I always Mm -hmm. love to talk to you guys. So
2: tell us about Eisenhower, this piece of uh, ground. Uh, Tell us this is a one-man play, and you've been involved with it for how long?
0: Um, About two years now. I got an email out of the blue from Peter Ellenstein, who is the director of this play, and who ran the um, William Inge Festival in Kansas Uh for many years. I went there twice, once in honor of Garson Kanin, who was a dear old friend of mine, and um, the second time for David Henry Huang, because I had done uh, M. Butterfly Mm -hmm. on Broadway, and um, so they asked me to come to that. So that's where I met Peter. and didn't get to know him very well, but that was that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, cut to many years later, 2021, he um, sends me this email saying, hey, I've got this play about Eisenhower, uh read it and see what you think i read it and thought it was terrific but still it was a 40 page single spaced monologue
3: <laughs>
0: and i said yikes you know um i'm not sure that i'm you know <laughs> that i'm the right guy for this but uh i i am very interested in it um and he said well look why don't you just come meet me and the playwright richard hellison who is a man that Peter had worked with over the years many times, both at the Inch Festival, but uh, Richard had had written a bunch of plays and even musicals that Peter had directed around in different places. So uh, I met them, and they asked me to just read it out loud. I hadn't done a lot of research on it, but I had um, listened to a bunch of Ike talking. And I found that he sounded exactly like somebody that I knew very, very well. Uh. I passed away uh, relatively uh, recently, but still I, I had that sound in my head. So I just read the play out loud to them with that sort of sound, that Ike sound. And by the time I finished it, the three of us were moved and sort of, uh, uh, not shocked, but, but taken to a place that we hadn't expected to go. Mm-hmm. From Eisenhower's words, from, from recounting his deeds, the events that he witnessed or participated in, mm-hmm. and most of all, his sort of profoundly humanistic character and his ability to foresee the future. And so when we finished it, we just sort of said, yep, we're doing this. This is important. We've got to do this play. And for the last two years, we've been working Mm -hmm. on it, and here we are.
3: Uh, My guess is that Eisenhower, in fact, was the first president that you were ever aware of while you were growing up.
0: Yeah, that's true. I was born during uh, Truman, but I I wasn't aware. Sure. And I absolutely remember being in second grade, and wearing an eye like Ike, uh-huh. aha! <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: and uh, and uh, this is because your parents uh, said uh, you should like Ike, or
0: uh... no? My parents, my parents were both Polish, one Catholic, one Jewish. Um, they had lived in Paris uh, in the '30s, and they fled with my older brother and sister, who were little kids then, because Hitler was on his way.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, my, my father had a concert tour already planned in the United States. So they got on the boat and they came over and and they became American citizens. And they moved to California with many, many, many artists and, you know, theater people, writers, composers, everybody who lived in Los Angeles at that time. And that's where I was born. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, they never really got into American politics uh-huh. very much they met many presidents i met dwight eisenhower myself did you no yeah. oh, tell us about Be- that because of them yeah. well because my my father always stayed in hotels he traveled all year every year all around the world he played like 150 to 200 concerts a year and he loved staying in hotels mm-hmm. but only in washington dc he would stay in the home Of this one lady named Virginia Bacon, who was the widow of an ex-Congressman, I believe. I never met him because he was dead before I showed up. Uh But my father and my mother, and even us kids, would stay at Virginia's house on F Street uh, when he played in Washington. So, this one time we were all there, and she was friends with Sherman Adams who was Ike's uh, chief of staff. And he invited us to come to the White House and we all went and he gave us a tour of the White House. And then at one point he passed a a room. I'm not sure if it was the Oval Office or some other room. Uh, And there was Eisenhower addressing a bunch of people about something. And Sherman Adams sort of waved at him from the door and Mm -hmm. Ike, W- wove his way through the crowd of people and came to the door where we were standing. Well, hello, how are you? You know, he, he, <laughs> he bent down and shook my hand and my <laughs> sister's hand and, and, uh, talked to my parents for a little while. And and then off we went.
3: Wow! So, so little did you know that the day would come when you'd be playing yeah,
0: him. I, uh, I would tell, have told him to give uh, me some pointers.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell our listeners who your daddy was.
0: My father was um, Arthur Rubinstein. He was a, a renowned concert pianist. Uh, he was born in 1887, so he oh. he straddled the the millennia there, and uh, yeah, and he made a huge career, you know, uh, uh, playing all over the world all his life until uh, until he was I think 89 was when he mm-hmm. stopped playing, and then he he died just a month short of his 96th birthday. Michael, you were going to say something?
1: Oh no! Just I've I've told John that I've I've been collecting a lot of his father's recordings on vinyl, and John uh, said that that you said you were at some of those recording sessions, right?
0: Yes, uh, indeed, I was. I sometimes was listening, and uh, sometimes turning the pages for him. Which uh, was, wow! Was <laughs> <scary> as <hell. laughs>
1: There are so many fabulous recordings on all, all on RCA label, I believe. Right. Um, uh huh yeah yeah really probably well,
0: some very story. old ones from the 30s on a Decca
1: deca uh, later. Uh-huh. oh okay yeah but then he he was signed by
0: rca yeah yeah he, he was surprised. rca almost all his life yeah
3: what was the biggest surprise when you read the script that you found out something about eisenhower you didn't know before
0: well i have to say most of it i didn't uh, know. Sure, i hadn't sure. really read up on him and and uh um i mean obviously i knew what sort of everybody uh, around my age uh, knows which is that he was the commander of the european mm-hmm. uh, theater of war and and orchestrated the landing at uh, at normandy on d day um and i knew about suez you know that he'd gotten into some trouble there with with the suez canal uh i knew about little rock I remember reading about it in the papers hmm. while it was happening. Um but pretty much everything else, especially his background, his father, his mother, his brothers, his you know, his military uh uh upbringing at West Point and then what happened to him in his various military assignments after West Point and and before World War II. I knew none of that and it's and it's really fascinating. The the part that, that is more fascinating than others is how reluctant he was. He never wanted to be a military person. He never mm. wanted to be a politician. He really didn't want to be. Uh, but he was dragged into it, not only by other people, but by his own sense of what was needed for his country that he loved.
3: Mm.
0: And when it finally sort of came down to, well, if i don't do this then it won't be done and if mm. it isn't done there is danger to my country so i've got to do it as little as i want to do it and that sort of character was the most uh, uh engrossing and sort of revelatory thing
1: well that that goes a lot uh of the way towards explaining uh, i get maybe his most famous quote earlier you said uh You talked about his ability to foresee the future. Yeah. And uh, I remember reading this years ago, and I didn't know a lot about him at the time. and I still don't. But it impressed me so much in his farewell speech, his final speech uh, as president. He said, in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought. By the military industrial complex, mm-hmm. the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist
2: yeah. and
1: and for someone who had been a general <laughs> to say that um, it, it speaks to everything you just said about him
0: absolutely and that that's well known today because <laughs> because what he sort of not only predicted but warned against, yes, and has so so fruitfully come to pass. Um, he is known for that now, that military industrial complex uh, statement. And we, we mention it, of course, in the play. But but he uh, had future vision for all kinds of things that no. are happening now. And in our play, <laughs> there are many places where I, when I first read it, and our audiences. Uh, In Los Angeles, where we've done this play and here for the last week where we've been performing for audiences, uh, they they recognize all of these things, all of which he said, but which could be said today about what is going on now and what has gone on for the last 10, 20 years. Um, He had this remarkable ability to to see what might happen if precautions weren't taken.
3: Right. Where does uh, the play start? Is he president? Uh, Is he running for president, et cetera, et cetera?
0: Our play takes place all uh, in one day, Uh, 1962. He's been out of the presidency for a year and a half. Kennedy is president. He's retired and living in Gettysburg. Um, And I remember this actually uh, myself. I uh, I used to read the papers for some reason when I was a little boy. Uh, maybe I just had a lot of time. On it. <laughs> and I remember the New York times magazine coming up in 1962 with 75 historians rating the presidents. And there were little pictures of all of the presidents in, in, in order of ranking Abraham Lincoln, number one, mm-hmm. Warren Harding at the yeah. very bottom. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Eisenhower came in at number 22. And so our play uses that. I think the playwright had that brilliant idea. Somebody had asked me, hey, write a write a one-man play about Eisenhower. I would have said, what? And I I wouldn't have had any idea where to begin. But this is what it is. And so I come storming in angry uh, to be ranked so low. His ego is bruised. uh, (laughs) And he feels bad, as any of us do when we get a bad review. (laughs) Um, And uh, he has a tape recorder because he's been recording with his editor, Kevin McCann, his book about his presidency. He's already published and, and had a sort of bestseller with his book about the war. But now he's writing another book and he's recording his memories and, and working hard on that. So the tape recorder is set up. So he punches that tape recorder and sends Kevin McCann this monologue that is our play about his life, his work, and everything else. And he's sort of talking to those 75 historians who aren't actually listening, but he's sort Uh of addressing them uh, to try to he starts by trying to justify uh, a higher ranking for himself. He feels that he shouldn't be down that low. Mm -hmm. And then during the course of it, relatively early on, he sort of he starts thinking more about, well, wait a minute. What does greatness in a in a president? Uh actually consist of what is it and he starts thinking in a much more sort of uh uh, i don't know ecumenical way about what what goes into greatness and how do you become great who is great what does it even mean and it becomes much less about his ego and his ranking than it does about the world and People and what what is needed to make people's lives better, and and that, that that's what where it gets extremely moving and inspiring and uplifting.
3: Um, in fact, has history been kinder as time has gone on? Are historians more inclined to say he was good?
0: Well, um, you know, uh, this isn't an episode of Succession or <laughs> or, or uh, you know Game of Thrones, but there are some spoilers. And I don't want to uh-huh, fine. spoil it so, to answer that question.
2: Well, we can all know that Warren Harding's no longer at the bottom.
0: <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I sure hope not. His family can revel in that. <laughs> good point, James.
3: <laughs> does, good Mamie, point.
0: does Mamie come up at all? Yes, yes. She's not on stage, of course, but, but yes, she's talked about quite a bit. Uh-huh. Was it a good marriage, in fact? Yes, it, it it seems to have been one of the great marriages. Uh, uh-huh. You know, there 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 is the character of of the woman who was his driver in Europe, in England. Okay, in, somebody, right? Yes, K, and I, again, I, her last name. Is yeah, not in my head right now. Um, But he always insisted that they never did have an affair. They became very close because they spent days and days and days and days and months and even, I think, over some years together every day. And so they they knew each other well and they were deep, good friends. Um, She later said that that they sort of almost had uh, a physical uh, romance, but that it didn't take place. Yes. And then in another book, she said that they had never, but he was, he wrote to Mamie every single day. He was loyal to her. Uh, Mamie had that woman uh, in the White House and invited her over. And then he never really um, saw her or dealt with her or communicated with her after the war. So basically, uh, only they too knew what took place, but the people around them said, "No, no, no! It wasn't a love affair. It was a very deep and close friendship." Hmm. But other than that, yes, their marriage was was wonderful. Hmm. Does uh, Eisenhower
3: defend his record as a president um, include the fact that he came? From this military background, does he mention anything along those lines? You know, and by the way, I was this terrific soldier, um, and I should get some respect for that. Or is that something that he does not bring up because, of course, it's not relevant to what he uh, did for those eight years in the White House?
0: Well, this, you know, the the play really goes back. As I say, he sort of drops the bruised ego. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes up here and there, and it's funny even in places because he's he's mad at them. Yeah, yeah, but. Uh, But no, he 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 talks about his military and presidential careers very honestly, admitting the mistakes he made, suffering the regret where he allowed himself, for instance, to be talked out of things that he knew he was he should have done and he wanted to do. But people around him and advisors said, oh, no, no, that's not a good idea. So he would not do them. And things went wrong. That he regrets, and, and about his military career too. It was all sort of happenstance, and and he was buffeted about, and and then he looks back on those times. He was complaining about various assignments he got, it didn't want them, mm-hmm. and then but they were where he learned so many different things that then when Franklin Roosevelt finally gave him the assignment to do you know to 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 run the European part of of World War two he was qualified because he had gone through all of those things mostly reluctantly uh but had learned and kept his knowledge of all of these different facets of military life and organization that he was then the one to do it. There were generals who were big stars like like Bradley and Patton and people yeah, like that. Yeah. But they were passed over for Eisenhower, who was not as as well-known in the military world as they were, and he got the job.
3: Oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> um, now, Hal Holbrook has talked about the fact that it took him a long time before he got to look like Mark Twain, that he had to <laughs> spend hours <laughs> making up. Um, do you have to spend a lot of time making up to look like Eisenhower?
0: No, I, 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 we all made a choice early on. Ike was very bald, and yet he grew some long hairs on his sides and combed them over, you know, just so he would have some sort of hair-looking stuff on top. (laughs) Hair-looking stuff—that's great. Yeah, well, that's sort of how he looked. You think of Ike—you think of a bald man yeah, yeah. If, if you look at a lot of pictures over the years, there's less and less of it, but you do see sort of faintly way back past the center of his of his head some hairs sort of you know traversing the the bald area and i and 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 the director we we decided let's not bother with that let's not either grow my hair that way which we didn't have time to do. My hair was very short uh, because of television stuff that I was doing. Um, I didn't have time to grow those side hairs long mm. so that they would be. My father used to do that. He he was bald, but he had very curly hair, and he would grow mm. it out to the sides. If there was a wind, it would blow out, and he would look like, he always said, like one of the three stooges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And Eisenhower, Trump is is sort of tiptoeing through that territory, too. He hates the wind because it (laughs) blows up whatever that is on top of his head. Um, So I just shave most of my hair off. Ah. So I am about as bald as I need to be. And Mm -hmm. I don't look like Eisenhower. And I'm sure the moment I walk out, people say, oh, he doesn't look like I." But hopefully very... Soon thereafter, it doesn't matter. I, I mm-hmm. look mm-hmm. like him to to be believable, mm-hmm. but I don't go to, you know, Laurence Olivier lengths to be a, an absolute image of him.
2: So, John, you uh, alluded to your, some of your television work and uh, talked to uh, that the Eisenhower play originally played in Los Angeles. You are one of the actors that has been very successful at splitting your time between Los Angeles and New York. And uh, this week in the news, we've heard that the Mark Taper Forum is, uh, has uh, put a pause on their productions, uh, Center Theater Group productions at Mark Taper Forum for uh, th- this year. And you've had ex- some experience at the forum. So tell us about you know what you've done there.
0: Well, I've often said... I love working on Broadway. It's it's sort of whatever you can characterize it as the the epitome, the the sort of the Valhalla of a theater <laughs> actor is to get to work on Broadway. Some say the West End in London, but there's something about those houses. I've played many of them, and they're all very different, and they all have their quirks, uh, and I love them. But I've said in my life that my favorite theater to work in is the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's still completely true, you know, but still it's it's way, way, way up there. There's something about it. It's a it's not in the round. It's a thrust where the audience sits pretty much on three ish sides of you. And so, you know, a set and 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 a play has to be. Uh, designed and directed in such a way that you you know you do have your back to your audience at some point or another mm-hmm. and so it, it makes things more fluid in terms of of the blocking and how how a play is put together um that is where I, in 19 what was it 1968 i did a they had a monday night they were dark on mondays and they had a monday night program called new theater for now and they did new plays and i did a play there a one act by oliver haley Mm. um, with uh john garfield jr david garfield Mm. john garfield's son um and it was a wonderful weird play and that was my first time in that in that theater and then um a few years later, Paul Sills from Chicago
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, put together uh, his sort of story theater version mm-hmm. of Ovid's Metamorphoses. And, uh, it was, you know, his big poem in Latin and, um, uh, it was translated and Paul put together this company. Uh, it was me and, and, uh, an actress named Judy West, whom I married mm-hmm. uh, subsequently, and uh, Leslie Ann Warren, and uh, lots of people. I'll, I'll start forgetting names in a minute. The football player, Bernie Casey, <laughs> mm-hmm. Susan Ansbach, uh, Avery Schreiber, mm-hmm. old George Gaines, whom I'd seen uh-huh in my very first Broadway musical, uh, wonderful, wonderful town. town. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he played, uh, Zeus. <laughs> Quite well. yeah. Uh, and, and we sort of threw this beautiful play together. Metamorphoses. Uh, we all played many different roles. There was no scenery at all. And, and we just sort of ran around, uh, and, and Viola Spolen, the famous uh, theater games, mm. uh, uh, teacher, uh, Came in and, and ran most of our rehearsals. Uh, and that was a spectacular uh, a moment in my life, that play, um, at that, at, in that particular space. They did a version of it on Broadway later that I wasn't in because I was busy in L.A. And I saw it. Um, and I, being in the proscenium on Broadway, it lost uh. to me 40% of its magic. From mm-hmm. being in that taper, there's something about that place. The audience, its a little bit like the the Beaumont here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, yeah, I think the Beaumont is bigger, uh-huh. and so you can be sitting up in the Beaumont there and really be sort of out of it. Whereas in the taper, you're never even if you're in the back row and even on the side, you're you're in it. You're you're you feel part of what's going on on the stage. And, and the acoustics are fantastic. You don't need to bellow. You can sort of bring it in and be intimate. And, and everybody in the room, even the ones you have your back to sometimes are involved and hear every word. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful space. And then, um, a few years after that, um, that's where we originated, um, Children of a Lesser God by Mark Medoff. Yes. Gordon Davidson ran the Taper and the Amundsen uh, Center Theater Group is what it's called, right? And they've added uh, now the Kirk Douglas Theater, which is in uh, Culver City, I think, um, <clears throat> where I've done some readings, but I've never done a, a perform, a, you know, a, a ticket selling play. <laughs> and, and Gordon ran all that. He started it. He he was the original. Uh, uh artistic director of that whole thing i think um in in the 60s um and and he directed the children of a lesser god there they had done it in new mexico where mark medoff was a was a professor and they had done a version of it there but the first actual you know professional production was at the taper and it was a big hit Um it was very weird with all the sign language we had you know doing the sign language with people that you turned your back to that was a little tricky but mm-hmm. we we worked it and there was a magic to the physical um aspect of that particular play because it's a memory play and this character that i played james leeds he's he's remembering his whole life specifically with with the the, the woman of uh, that he married Played by Phyllis Freilich, um, deaf woman, and he is a, a, a sign language—I mean, a, a voice, a, a speech therapist—is the is the title, and so he's given the task of educating her and making her learn how to speak, which she does not want to do. And they fall in love, they get married, and then their marriage falls apart at the end. And so he's remembering this, and at the taper. I was running from space to to space. We uh-huh. had these benches that didn't move and these sort of pits where you could sit on one side or the other. And I would run around the stage. Then this happened here. And then this happened there. And sometimes the whole stage became like a, a garden where we were a fountain and a, a bedroom and all these different things with no scenery changes, just lights. When we came to Broadway and we put it at the Long Acre and we had to make it Proscenium. Then we had those benches, and they sort of rolled in and rolled out. Sort of, <laughs> you know. And it was never, it never looked anywhere near as good and beautiful as it did at the taper. And I didn't get to run from place to place, which sort of gave energy. I sort of stood there, and behind me the bench came rolling on. And so, it, the taper is a is a magnificent place to to do a play.
1: The one production I ever saw there was uh, "Gross Indecency: The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde." Oh, um, yeah! in In 1998, right after it played off Broadway, and I remember um, everything that you just said. What a wonderful space it was! Very much like the the Beaumont, but much smaller. Yes, and, yeah, um, and the
0: smallness is the key.
1: Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, uh some people feel uh, you know, of course it's a, I'm sure it's a very complicated situation, but their their current problems. I know some people o- online are saying, and this is not new, that the theater is just generally speaking really not respected in LA uh that that much. And I remember um that that production of of the three trials of Oscar Wilde, Gross Indecency, uh Mike Doyle was in it uh playing Bosey. Um, you know, Lord Alpha Douglas, which is a a great part, and he said that that production was a big wake up call for him because it was it was um, such a uh, the play uh, reputation was, was so great coming from off Broadway, and Michael Emerson repeated his uh, his starring role as Oscar Wilde, and there was so much publicity and it was so well respected. He said, uh, but Mike said his agent didn't even come to see it. <laughs> and he said it was a big wake-up call, and that's when he kind of um, left LA for New York. Now I'm sure that you know there's exceptions to that rule, but uh, I do. You, do you did you have a sense of that, John? That in general, uh, that theater is not that well respected. Um, no,
0: absolutely the opposite. I, I would I would fight you on that. <laughs> oh, interesting.
1: Okay, All
0: right. Los Angeles is arguably the biggest theater town in the world, bigger than London, bigger than New York, bigger than Tokyo, bigger than any place in terms of the amount of theaters that are there and the amount of people who put their bums into seats in the audience every single night. Um, I guess the reason uh, I- for that is because obviously uh, actors stream there from all over the world wanting to be uh, you know in television and movies right, right. Is the hub of that <laughs> and uh, this business <laughs> this show business that we're all in to some degree is is a rough one mm-hmm. it's really tough to make a living and to d- have any continuity so there are a lot of lot of lot of thousands and thousands of actors in Los Angeles and environs driving taxis and Ubers and Lyfts and working as nannies and real estate agents and, and uh, you know, in restaurants because they're not getting those jobs uh, in television. They get one maybe, and then six months go by and then they get another and they're very happy about those. But in between they got to make a living. So they're there and they're waiting and hoping and auditioning, but, but The movies and television world is not that welcoming. Meanwhile, they're actors and they group together and they form these little theater companies or just a play gets put on, not with a company, just somebody says, let's do this. And so after driving their Uber all day or, (laughs) you know, selling a couple of condos, they go at night and they do some Shakespeare and some Chekhov or uh, uh, The Music Man or, <laughs> you know, uh, some uh, amazing new play. There are lots of writers, as we now know with this strike, mm-hmm. you know, right. wanting to write movies and screenplays. But they're writers, so they write plays or they write a screenplay and they put it on stage. And actors can't wait to do it. They pay to do it. We, I, I still belong to a company called Interact Theater Company. We've worked there for years and years and years and years and do fantastic plays. And if the press covers it, the L.A. Times, used to be a Herald-Examiner, it's no longer. As, as in New York, you know, there were many mm-hmm. newspapers and there are fewer and fewer all over the country, all over the world, I imagine but when the press covers them and they used to the at Los Angeles Times which is a great newspaper used to cover all of the little theaters sometimes in just a paragraph but so if it, if they felt it merited it they would cover it in in a large essay and people come we ran some little plays there for 7 8 months and we finally mm. had to stop because people you know they were having babies and stuff we just we couldn't do it anymore <laughs> Um, now don't get me started about my beloved first and always faithful union, Actors Equity. Actors Equity uh, lives here in New York. I love them. I have been a proud member of it my entire life since, since I was 18 years old. Um, and they do great, 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 excellent stuff for their actors and their their stage managers um but they have something that i would call a blind spot about los angeles i don't know if it's a sort of a geographical problem Mm -hmm. or a jealousy because people in tv and movies make so much more money than people in theater generally i don't know what it is or if it's neither of those but they went on a campaign starting about what 2013-14
1: uh, oh is that about the 99 seat theater yes, yeah. yes. You know,
2: like the LA contract
0: saying yeah. well why do you people want to work for nothing mm-hmm. don't you believe actors should be paid for their work well of course we do <laughs> <laughs> but if nobody will pay us mm-hmm. to do it mm-hmm. and we are actors does that mean we must stay home and, and you know watch TV no <laughs> if, if we want to put on a uh, the three sisters and pay for our own costumes and our lights and put together the theater and bring it to an audience then why can't we but equity worked very very hard to stop us yeah. in, in the name of We are representing you. We don't want these producers out there to take advantage of you and to make all this money off of your labor without paying you. There were no producers. We were the producers. Hmm. We were paying with our poor little earned money that we got from however we got it to put on these beautiful plays all over the city. And that has now been more or less destroyed By the agency that I love. It's sort of like if your mother gives you a terrible beating, you say, wait a minute, that's my mom. (laughs) I love her. She (laughs) gave me life. I will love her till the day I die. But man, does my butt hurt.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And that isn't fair. And that's how I feel.
1: I'm sorry about that. I know that was very controversial and and just to clarify uh, what I was saying before, I w- I wasn't saying that there isn't a lot of theater and that there isn't quality and that or that there aren't the audiences. I was just talking more in terms of the way the f- the f- film industry views theater there. But, you know, I mean, I guess that's maybe not a tremendous I think, surprise. No, I
0: really think it's more geographical. I think it's more how New York Writers, even actors, I got—I had dear friend actors from New York writing to me during all of that because I was very vocal about it, mm-hmm. saying, "Well, John, if you want to act for nothing, why don't you just act in your bathroom?"
1: <laughs> well, that's ridiculous. That's
0: the the disrespect. Yeah, and that's it comes more that's from terrible. this beautiful city uh, where I grew up and which I love and feel like is my home. Uh, than it does from Los Angeles.
3: Is this your first one-person show?
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've uh. been looking for a, I've been looking for a one-person show for, I don't know, like 25 years. And uh-huh. because I play the piano and I, I'm sort of a musician and I've done various musicals. I would never ever call myself a singer. I figured, okay, I'll do someone man thing at the piano and i'll uh, sing songs i don't know what maybe i'll pretend i'm cole porter or something i don't know but then so many excellent way better than me pianists and singers who sing seven times better than i do do that that i said nah, that's just been done too much there's nothing i can come up with that's original so i sort of gave up on that idea um until Peter Allenstein sent me this play, do you and think you I might? Am.
1: Do you think you might take over in Good Night Oscar?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I got to get through this one first.
2: <laughs> I don't know, John. You could write a show where uh, you play Elton John.
0: You know? Oh my god!
2: <laughs> you know there is no Elton John show that I know of. That's a no. retrospective of it's him. coming,
3: I'm sure.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I did think that it might be fun to do something like Gustav Mahler some classical guy that people sort of know his name and classical music people know him, but most others don't. Yeah, I could play on the piano sort of vaguely some of his themes from his symphonies, you know, not really play them out, but just sort of be him because he had a very dark and weird, colorful life and maybe be him in some kind of, but I need a playwright. I'm not a playwright. And and our playwright here, Richard Hellison, has done such a beautiful job, I think, on this Eisenhower play. But I would need a playwright to to write me a Mahler play, or you know, I even thought of of doing Herman Melville, which has nothing to do with music. <laughs> so do
1: anyway. you think you might ever conceivably play your father?
0: No,
2: never. No, okay, no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he could play a uh, uh, Gustavo Dudamel.
0: Oh boy you guys stolen from us.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Leland Palmer uh, told me that she was disappointed with the Pippin recording because it was speeded up. Um, yes. Oh, uh, that that is true. She was right Absolutely. about
0: that. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, then, you know, vinyl, it, it, you had to you couldn't go over a certain amount of seconds or minutes whatever. And her song, I mean, whatever, we were whatever it was, 20 30 45 seconds too long for that side of the LP. <laughs> ah. And so they picked hers to instead of spread a little sunshine, and went spread a little sunshine. It was just a little bit faster mm. and a little bit higher. Nowadays, there are beautiful recording, you know, mechanisms where you can change pitch without, uh, uh where you can change speed with mode. speed without, with, yeah. you can
1: change speed without changing pitch. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, but then you couldn't. So right. if you if you sped it up, it went up in like that. It got a little bit more. <laughs> you know, well, so only,
3: she, only she was affected.
0: Yes, only that one. Number. Uh-huh. Okay, did, that's did they care of the the amount of seconds that needed to be huh. shaved off?
1: Did they not correct her pitch when when CDs came in?
0: I don't believe they did.
3: Oh, yeah, they that's too bad. Didn't.
2: Yeah. John, uh, you um, had a great interview with uh, Matt Tamanini on Broadway Radio earlier this week, and you talked about uh, one of the cut and replaced songs from Pippin. Uh, can you tease us with a little bit of that?
0: Oh, my God, I, I don't remember enough of it. Um, it. The song Extraordinary, which comes in the... Well, it, now it's in the second, second act. act right? But, but it, we used to do it in in one full act. Right. Um, but it's the second part of the play where Pip is <clears throat> living with the 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 widow and and her and her little son, and he you know he loves her and he loves the kid, but he just he thinks he's meant for much bigger, better stuff than than doing housework and farm work. So he's frustrated. And uh, the song was called Marking Time. And it went, I'm only marking time with you. And I don't remember the other lyrics. Hmm. Uh, And it was a pleasant song, even though the lyrics were, you know, venting his sort of frustration. but. uh, it was, dip, 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 dip. oh, I'm only marking kind with you. And it just didn't allow the Pippin character to be pissed off. And so uh, uh, Bob Fosse and, and uh, Roger, Herson and Steve Schwartz decided to, uh, to axe that song and put extraordinary and patching the roof and pitching the hay is not my idea of a perfect day. So that was much, much better. But also, to, to my feeling, the bigger replacement there was the love song. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a love song that Jill Clayburgh and I sang together. Uh, and it again, it was nice. It was a, a lovely song, but it didn't really, um, it didn't, really connect us in in a sort of a love duet, which it had to be. It couldn't be a big operatic one, so it had to be a relatively light one, but it had to still have emotion and feeling and and a sort of tenderness to it, which the other song didn't. It was sort of more uh, a commentary than a participatory uh, song. And in Washington uh steven schwartz came up with what now is called love song um which is a beautiful duet mm. and i loved singing it and i, I remember the first day that we heard it we were summoned to the little rehearsal room and steve played it for us and we read it and sang it and we said oh boy this is so wonderful we're so happy But that night, we were on at the Kennedy Center uh, in Washington. So we had to do the old song, which we had done. And it was choreographed in such a way that she sat up on a little weird box that came up out of the stage at the foot of the stage. And I sat on the floor next to her. And I sang the first song, the first line of it, which I don't remember right now, yada, yada, yada. And then she sang the second line out, yada, yada, yada. And then we looked at each other. And sang in harmony, yada, 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 looking at each other. And that song, compared to the love song we had just sung earlier that day, uh, was so, I don't know, I don't want to use bad words. It just wasn't, it didn't do it. And so, for some reason, we looked at each other, and we started to laugh (laughs) in front of the full audience. And... Both of us were, you know, we were sort of honorable theater people. Jill, a tremendous actress and wonderful person. And and I was, you know, I was a professional, even though it was my first big Broadway job. And uh, we desperately tried to stop laughing. And <laughs> we, we would sing a lot, well, Well, <laughs> we would get two notes out and start laughing again. It was awful. <laughs> and I looked at poor little Stanley Lebowski, who was our <laughs> director and conductor, and he stood down there in the pit on his podium looking at us with a face of, what sure. in God's name are you people doing? <laughs> right Conducting this sort of mild accompaniment, and nobody was singing anything. We were just there laughing. Oh, my gosh. I'll never uh, forget that. I think I lost about 10 pounds. In the well,
2: John, I want to thank you so much for visiting with us on uh, Broadway Radio Eisenhower. This piece of ground is playing its seven week off Broadway engagement. Uh, just started this week, June 13th and it plays through July 30th at uh, the theater at St. Clements on 46th Street. Opening night is coming up this, uh, this Tuesday evening, uh, June 20th at 7 p.m. And, uh, we can get more information at EisenhowerThePlay.com. Thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio.
0: It's been a pleasure, and I love listening to you guys every week.
2: Okay, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moments, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. You can subscribe at Patreon, patreon.com slash Broadway Radio, and support Broadway Radio and all of its other endeavors. In fact, uh, uh, Patreon supporters got a chance to listen to an exclusive interview with Matt Tamanini and John uh, just the other day, and uh, a lot of great stuff came up in there, so... Uh, I'll put a link back to uh, Matt's interview with John in the show notes as well, so you can take a li- uh, listen to that. You can also listen to us on uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to. Find a podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer for last week's trivia?
3: He wrote a famous theme for one of television's longest running shows, as well as a signature song for one of the nation's most famous singers. He also recorded three songs that reached number one on the charts. So what does this have to do with Broadway? Well, he did fill in for one week and one week only in a Broadway musical that was on its way to a more than 500 performance run. Who is he? What's the musical? Well, it's Paul Anka, who wrote the theme song for The Tonight Show during the Johnny Carson era, who wrote My Way for Frank Sinatra, whose recordings of Diana, Lonely Boy, and You're Having My Baby each reached number one. He filled in for Steve Lawrence and What Makes Sammy Run during the week of July thirteenth, 1964. Another Paul... Witty, that is, beat out Tony Janicki by only a few split seconds, followed by Joss Israel, J. Aubrey Jones, Brigadude, Jack Leshner, Mike Awanis, and Sean Logan. This week's question This immigrant became much better known as a novelist than a playwright, but she did write a play that had an unusual twist. Its title has something to do with a show that at one time was Broadway's longest running musical. Who's She? What's her play? How does it relate to the smash hit musical?
2: Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what's uh, in this week's musical moment?
1: Well, we discussed uh, with John Rubenstein the original Broadway cast album of Pippin, and he uh, has often... um, joked well not really sure. joked because it's true <laughs> that he's a Motown recording artist because <laughs> <That's true. laughs> because yeah. the album was on the Motown label. Uh one of very few, uh maybe mm. maybe the only one? I can't think no, of it. no, I think maybe um no, maybe not. But anyway, <laughs> very, one of very few cast albums on that label. And so our opener, uh our opening music this week is John singing Corner of the Sky. And our closer is John and Company singing Morning Glow uh, from that original Broadway cast recording of Pippin, which uh, I'm sure has a pride of place in many collections of many of our listeners.
2: (laughs) All right. So, on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to your broader videos this week on Broadway. Bye Bye bye. Bye.
0: Sure.